Hi, Akash. How are you? Uh, can you hear me? So the unmute button is all the way on the bottom right. Uh, there's a little microphone symbol. If you press on that, you should be able to unmute. If not, I have to restart the room because since you started the room, you're moderator now. So I cannot um, put the paper, uh, the slides up or anything. So let me just restart the room. I'm sorry. Or, okay. Hi, everyone. We will start in on top of the hour. So, uh, hi, Ashka. Hello. Yes, now it works. Perfect. Yeah, the first okay, time perfect. you use the app, I think it's, I don't know why they do it for security or something. That you cannot unmute the very first time. So now sure, but it's working now, correct? Yeah, perfect. Okay, perfect. Um. Let me put up the um, the topics and then the the presentation. Okay. Oh. And then so I'll just to, sorry. Oh yeah, go ahead. Just a quick question, since I've never, uh, I'm not too familiar with this. So the, um, is this a very general audience? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. it's a mix of our audience exactly. Okay. So. Okay. All right. So. Yeah, it's a public room, so anyone can okay. just join in general. So it's it's good to have like a mix of. Um, you know, like the general view and then also mm -hmm. details for the science people. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for coming and doing this. Sure. Oh, it sounded enough. interesting. Oh, great. On a Friday evening for you. Um, it's quite all right. Yeah. So, yeah, we have like around seven minutes until we start. I'll mm -hmm. share in the meantime on Twitter that we started and um, and then uh, before we go into your presentation, I'll introduce you and if it's okay with you, I'll ask me a couple of interview questions like around how you came, became to be a scientist type of questions, if that's okay. That's fine. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think for like the general public, it's very sure. interesting. Sure, so. sure. Perfect. Hi, everyone. I'll uh, uh, put the slides on top and I will be uh, posting right now in the chat the open source version of the paper, uh, which is a bioarchive um, preprint and then I'll also um, add the nature paper version um, so you have the option to read both but in case you don't have access there's always the preprint 
And the slides are pinned on top of the room so everyone can access it. And uh, yeah, feel free to share the room. I'm going to do that right now. Thank you. Okay, I shared the room. We still have a few minutes, but I hope your year started well <laughs> so far. Oh. Sorry, yes, please. Oh yeah, don't worry about that. It's just uh, I'm sorry, I'm I may have missed it. Did did you say something? Oh yeah, I just said I hope you know your year started well. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Better than last year, hopefully. Yeah. Yes, for sure. How about you? That's great. We had the we had some people dying uh, this oh. yeah this uh, holiday season, which was really sad. Yeah. But other than that, um, everything is good. But I read that statistically, it's much likelier for for a person to die in December for whatever reason, even in Australia where there's summer. Yeah, I was going to ask, this was the first thing that came to my mind. Is it, is it even in Australia? Yeah, that was curious. I don't know. It's hmm. interesting. Maybe just lack of sleep a, and drinking. I don't know. Uh, yeah, like some cultural thing probably rather than rather than weather related. But other than that, everything is good. <laughs> so, hi everyone, uh, welcome. Uh, we will start in a couple of minutes. Uh, feel free to check out the paper in the meantime. There's a preprint version, which is free for everyone in case you don't have access. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to this really interesting discussion. Um, it's a uh, a really interesting study and also um, when I read your bio the the, um, the research you worked on before um, was really interesting so I'm really looking forward to this so yeah thank you I'm I'm very much looking forward to it too
Okay, just a couple of minutes left. Um, I think people will st still keep coming in. Like usually people keep coming in a few minutes also after. I think we can just start on time and then um, and then we'll go from there. Okay. So yeah, welcome everyone uh, to Science Society and of course a special welcome to you um, Ashkash. And as I said, before we um, start, um, I'll give the audience like a brief overview um, so they get to know you a little bit. Um, and let me really quick share your lab website into the chat so people that the the cool thing about um, recording here on Clubhouse is that the chat and all the links we share also the slide link uh, on top they'll stay active so um, when they people listen to the replay they go, can go into the chat and click on those links and if they want to take a deeper dive into anything we discuss or any of your work so um, Okay, so um, Dr. Um, Ashkash Bazu, he um, began uh, his academic career um, at Stanford University and the group of Zef Ryan as a PhD student. And um, he there was visualizing um, uh, biochemical reactions basically one molecule at a time um, using biophysical to biophysics tools and then um, later on uh, by the end of his PhD he was awarded with a, a life science research foundation postdoctoral fellowship uh, where, and that's when he joined the group of Jim um, Hudspeth at the Rockefeller University and um, there he developed a magnetic tweezing based system what was capable of interrogating the entire inner ear tissue uh, which is also really cool <laughs> and um, then as later on he joined the lab of uh, Teki Pa at uh, Johns Hopkins University um, where he was a postdoc and um, he continued working on single molecule um, high throughput assays uh, for studying DNA and chromatin at a genomic scale. And uh, that's where he um, built the expertise in using single molecule fluorescence resonance energy transfer, which is a really cool tool. Like I use um, FRET and in my work but um, not a single molecule um, <laughs> level uh, it's a really helpful and powerful tool and then uh, in 2022 um, he joined Durham University as an assistant professor and um, we will talk about his current research um, now uh, during the talk but before we go into your presentation um, 
what was what inspired you to become a scientist um if you can recall maybe you always wanted to do that as a kid maybe it was a book or a teacher that inspired you whatever the story is we are really curious to hear it thank you um yeah that's a very difficult question to to answer properly but as far as i can recall i have wanted to be a scientist um, since I was a kid. I mean, it goes back as far as I can recall, as I mentioned. Although my specific scientific interests were, of course, always shaped by information and resources that were available to me at various stages in my life. Um, as a kid, you're impressionable. Um, and you tend to get more interested in the sort of uh, things that you hear others talking about or the sort of uh, literature that you find available. And if you look at popular science, which I would say was certainly instrumental in, in getting me interested in science, uh, there is a lot of popular science related to topics like astronomy, astrophysics, cosmology, and all that. And so, that's what got me interested. But then later, when I went through the process of science, when I went to university, um, I got more interested in biological problems and biophysics and, and life in general. And that's how I switched over from a more uh, physics a sort of direction to the biophysics research that I currently do. Um, and in many ways, it's really a matter of whether you want to be a scientist, whether something specifically inspires you. But once that's, that's happened, the specific problems or the specific questions that you work on are really an accident of where you found yourself and what other people were doing around you and what got you interested. Um, <laughs> I guess that's all I have to say. Well, that's a very interesting story how you switched, um, yeah, kind of switched, uh, you know, from physics into the life sciences is really interesting uh, story there. And um, it probably is a key to, um, yeah, to being able to merge these fields uh, to have such, you know, interest to develop so such good work and such an interesting uh, work and and then um how did uh, this project come about is there maybe a background story around that was that you know something um that developed based you know on on previous interests or um you know was it really hard uh, easy to get funding for you know, whatever the backstory is, it's really interesting to hear. Thank you. So this particular project uh, revolves around trying to understand how the mechanical properties of DNA regulate various biological processes. And in oftentimes in science or in biology or any branch of science, for example, um, we tend to think about science being driven by by this flowchart of you have a hypothesis, then you test your hypothesis, then you refine your hypothesis, and the cycle continues. But we do every once in a while take 
a, a, a pathway that's not exactly as streamlined. And I guess that was something what went on with this project. Oftentimes, before you even have a hypothesis, you need to make a new observation about the world. And so a really good way to generate hypothesis is to develop techniques of making new types of measurements without any bias about what those measurements that you will make down the road would tell you about the world. And so that's really where this project came along. You see, for decades before this, people had measured mechanical and physical properties of DNA, but we developed this technology to make those measurements in very, very high throughput and to understand how those measurements would change with sequence. And because we had a tool, it allowed us to make many new observations. And so we went ahead and make those observations to see what kind of hypothesis that would come about from those observations. And we saw that based on these observations, we could uh, come up with several ideas about how the physical properties of DNA might drive specific biological processes in general, might encode regulatory information. And that really served as the basis for this current paper that is being shared. And it was really a means of testing all the hypotheses that came about because we developed this tool in the first place to make novel types of measurements on DNA. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting, and I'm glad um, you know the, this project came about and um, got realized. Uh, and yeah, so everyone, the slides are pinned on top, and um, the the. The stage is yours. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Katerina. A uh, quick question is that, like, how does questions work? I mean, would people? Yeah, go uh, ahead. Yeah, so there are two ways of asking. One is raising the hand and coming here on stage, like Jeremy uh, just did. The other one is uh, using um, the chat, uh, posting comments there and questions, and I will monitor it for you so you don't um, have you know you can just focus on uh, answering and presenting uh, it's really up to you if you open up for questions in between or if you rather want people would like people to wait until then uh, usually most people just wait but uh, yeah okay. it's, it's really up to you no it's it's fine i mean i would like this to be as interactive as possible since it it seems like a more kind of an informal way to present rather than formally with slides so i'd be happy to like if you notice some important questions that are being raised uh, maybe you could point me to it and then i could pause and talk a little bit about it and take that chance to catch up on questions uh yeah <sighs> does that sound good Yes, perfect. Thank okay. you. Thank All right. So let me start. Um, so, so my lab is in Durham University. It's a it's a medieval town in the north of England. And here's a picture of the iconic uh, Durham Cathedral. And this is where um, we are studying DNA mechanics and trying to figure out how the physical properties of DNA impact various types of biological processes. So let me get straight to it. If you look at the 
complex functions that all cells need to carry out, it's just mind boggling. Cells have to, for example, transduce energy, they have to grow, they have to sense the environment they live in, they have to reproduce, uh, they have to evolve, and there are many, many other tasks that cells have to carry out. And very broadly, proteins and other macromolecules carry out these various types of functions. And information teaching the cells how to produce these proteins and other macromolecules is stored in DNA. And this is, of course, very basic stuff. And I'm, I'm pitching this for an extremely broad and general audience. And chances are that a lot of you already know this. So, so feel free to zone out. Otherwise, stay with me. Um, so, so what is DNA and how does it code information that, that cells need to produce proteins and other macromolecules? So physically, this is slide three. Physically, DNA is a very long string. It's a polymer. And if you zoom in on any one region of the polymer, uh, as I have done on slide four, and it's essentially two strands which are wrapping around each other. And along each strand is a sequence of up to four chemical bases appearing in any random order, A, T, Gs, and Cs. This is, I guess, part of general knowledge these days. And somehow this uh, sequence of bases along the DNA encodes information. And it's very much like how, for example, in slide five, I have this uh, little cartoon of how the sequence of characters can encode some meaning when encoded via the English language. And it's very similar. The sequence of bases along DNA can encode some information, which cells can decode via what is known as the genetic code and use that information to produce proteins. So now uh, I'm on slide six at this point. It just storing information in DNA is pretty useless unless you can do something useful with that information. For example, you have to copy that information and replicate the entire molecule of DNA when the cell divides, so you can pass it on equally to the two daughter cells. You need to repair this information in DNA when it gets damaged because of chemical uh, factors, because of UV radiation or whatever. Then DNA, remember, is a very, very long string of bases, and it needs to be packaged properly within the crowded environment of the cell. And finally, the information needs to be transcribed, which is a fancy way of saying that it needs to be read. You just can't store the information. You still have to read it when you need to produce proteins to carry out the tasks that you need to carry out in order to continue life. So how are these critical processes accomplished? Well, it turns out that there are specialized proteins within cells which bind to DNA at various regions and carry out these tasks of copying, repairing, packaging, or transcribing the information in DNA. Which brings us to the question in slide seven, for what exactly are these DNA binding proteins and what are they doing locally to DNA? Now, DNA binding proteins are proteins which bind to specific regions of the DNA 
and then based on their chemical properties, they can locally modify the DNA or repair it or read the sequence of bases along it and so on. But from our point of view, the most interesting and the key thing to bear in mind is that these are real physical attractions between DNA and the protein of interest. It's very much like you touching a long string somewhere. It's not just an interaction that you keep tab off on a, on a computer or on a database. And so whenever proteins bind to DNA, there is some kind of physical distortion or deformation to the DNA molecule that is being induced. Why? Because it's a physical object touching another physical object. And on slide seven, there are two examples from among millions of examples, not millions, thousands of examples of DNA protein interactions. In the first instance, that uh, yellow, yellow cylinder is a protein core called the histone octamer. It's, it's not important to go into the details. And the black string is DNA. And DNA wraps around this core, this cylinder, forming the structure called a nucleosome. And it is very much like how you would wrap a string around a spool in order to properly package it. In fact, that's one of the easiest ways in which you can organize and package a jumbled piece of string. It's by wrapping it around a spool. And nature does the same with DNA within the cell except all of the DNA is not wrapped around just one spool, but there are many, many such spools throughout the genome, and each spool wraps about two turns of DNA forming these structures called nucleosomes. But the important point is that it involves extensive DNA bending. As you can see, DNA bends and forms almost two circles as it wraps around the protein core. And on the right is another example of a molecular machine called a polymerase, which sits on DNA, walks along it, and reads the sequence of bases along its length. And in order to gain access to the sequence of bases, it needs to locally unwind the two strands. And so that's yet another example of a DNA protein interaction that requires mechanical distortions of DNA. Now, if we move to slide eight, what I'm trying to suggest here is that whenever objects undergo, if you try to mechanically deform an object, most objects resist deformations. If you press a spring, the spring pushes you back. If you try to bend a rod, well, you need to put in a lot of energy because the rod resists bending. And it's no different from DNA. If you try to bend DNA, if you try to twist DNA, DNA has mechanical properties that allow it to resist these types of deformations. And those mechanical properties have been very well characterized for over 30 years. And so, in many ways, the ease with which these DNA binding proteins can carry out the critical tasks that they need to carry out, this, this ease can be regulated and controlled by what the mechanical properties of DNA are. If DNA is very hard to bend, then maybe it's going to be very hard to form a structure like the nucleosome. If DNA is very hard to twist, it's probably going to be very hard to locally unwind the two strands of DNA and allow processes like transcription to take place. Then, so 
That apart, the next idea that has been gaining traction for quite some time is that not only does DNA have mechanical properties that allow it to uh, resist deformations, but that those mechanical properties in turn depend on what the local sequence is, which means that throughout the length of the DNA string, it's bendability or its twistability are not constant, but they vary depending on what the local sequence is. Which means that sequence can actually control and regulate DNA deforming processes such as nucleosome formation or transcription via the impact that it has on the local mechanical properties of DNA. And now going back to the analogy of the English language, it's very much like how the same set of characters, P-A-I-N, when encoded in English, convey a meaning, as shown in that cartoon in, in slide nine. But that same set of characters when encoded in the French code conveys an entirely different meaning. Likewise, in the case of DNA sequence, the sequence when encoded, when via when decoded via the genetic code, gives cells information on how to produce proteins. But there is a mechanical code as well, which also controls what the local mechanical properties of the DNA are, which in turn is going to control how easy it is to manipulate or to repair or package or copy the protein coding information that is there in that region of DNA. So broadly, we want to decode this mechanical code. We want to understand how throughout the entire genomes of organisms, variations in sequence lead to variations in the physical properties of DNA. And in turn, how does this control and regulate the thousands of DNA deforming biological processes that need to take place throughout the genome in order to properly carry on the functions of life? So that was sort of a very broad introduction, and this might be a good time to briefly pause for a few questions if there are any. Um, yeah, um, in case anyone has questions, please unmute or put it in the chat and I'll read it out. Um. Hi, Kat. Um, hi, Akash. So I, I think hi. I probably would like to sort of ask, um, yeah. sort of based on what you're explaining so far, this is actually really fascinating uh, and, and really curious to see where, um, what you, to find out like what your findings, uh, to, mm -hmm. to essentially, you know, um, look into what your findings are. That being said, um, I want have like one question. I may have another later on, but is, are there like, for example, transcriptions of proteins that make it impossible because the the mechanical deformation of the DNA is rather impossible. So just to explain what I mean is that suppose that you have sequence of base pairs, right? Um, is there um, sort of like uh, an RNA sequence that 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 is that makes it harder to bind to this uh, to this DNA sequence with with predefined uh, base pair sequence because of the mechanical deformation and vis-a-vis -vis that would lead to um, 
such a protein not be synthesized? Does that, does that make sense? Yes, uh, absolutely. It makes sense. And that's a great question. So I, I believe I'm in the, in a broad sense, what you're asking is that can the expression levels of proteins be controlled based on what the mechanical properties of the underlying coding DNA are? And, and yes, that's very much the case because in order to properly express proteins, several things need to happen, like polymerases needs to bind to DNA, um, nucleosomes need to form correctly, and each and every one of those important DNA protein interactions, and I'm going to show you examples of this, depend and can be controlled by what the local physical properties of DNA are. So there is this underlying mechanical regulatory code that is encoded in sequence, which controls how easily the, the genetic code can, can express itself or can transcribe itself. Uh, I'm not sure if, if that, was, uh, uh, that was enough, but I'm going to, I'm going to give you examples where uh, processes like transcription are, uh, where we think processes like transcription are impacted by DNA mechanics. Yeah, I'll, I'll be really happy to learn about that. Yeah, okay. Thank you. All right. So let me continue for now, and we can get back to questions later. So here's a so we're on slide ten at this point. Now, and at this point, I'm kind of changing gears and uh, jumping over into more technical stuff. All. So if there are important questions or clarifications, please do uh, please do mention it. So. We, we had this idea that the local physical properties of DNA can depend on sequence, but is that really true? And here's a, what is known as a FRET, a fluorescence resonance energy transfer, which Katerina introduced earlier. So this is a FRET-based experiment that uh, confirms this suggestion that mechanical properties do in fact depend on sequence. And this is not to say this is the only way people have shown this. People have shown this over many years using many different methods. But in this experiment, we have a, a short DNA fragment. It's about uh, 100 base pairs in length, which is very short as compared to the length of the genome. And on the ends, there are what are known as uh, complementary single-stranded overhangs. That's just a, a technical term for, for Velcro. Basically, the ends, if they come close to each other, can stick. And we put in two fluorophores. These are molecules that absorb light at a certain wavelength, and they emit light at a different wavelength. And when the fluorophores are far apart from each other, as is the case when the molecule is linear, when the ends are not in contact with each other, then there is a certain optical signature to that, which we can detect. And then when the ends do come close to each other, there is a different optical signature which we can detect. And that way we're able to infer what the shape of the molecule is. Is it linear or is it looped? And the premise or the hypothesis going into this is that if this DNA fragment is very, very bendable, then this molecule should loop really quickly. And if it is rigid, then it should uh, not be able to loop very quickly. And on the right are uh, kinetic curves for percentage in the loop state as a function of time. And you don't have to go into the technical details. Every, sing every curve represents a different sequence. It suffice to say that when sequences change, 
we see that the probability of of looping dramatically changes by by more than the rate of looping changes by more than an order of magnitude so the takeaway message is that dna sequence can dramatically impact what the local bendability of dna is and perhaps other mechanical properties as well like torsional rigidity although we don't have a ready means of measuring those <clears throat> so uh, let's go back to this flowchart on on slide 11. We're talking about processes that involve DNA deformations. Those processes are likely impacted by what the mechanical properties of DNA are. And we know that those mechanical properties of DNA in turn depend on sequence. So this automatically leads to the big broad question that we want to answer, which is that does sequence store regulatory information encoded via a sort of mechanical code, which can regulate diverse DNA deforming processes uh, throughout the genome. So what do we have to do if you want to answer that question? Well, it's simple. We have to take the, I'm on slide 12, by the way. We'll have to take the entire genome of an organism, chop it up as a sort of, as a, as a series of short DNA fragments, perform those FRET experiments I discussed about on each of those fragments and use that data to create a map of how DNA bendability varies with position throughout the genome. And then we will compare that map to other known genomic data sets which tell us, for example, in which regions of the genome are certain processes happening, in which regions of the genome are certain DNA deforming processes not happening, and we try to see if there are correlations. For example, is it really true that regions along the genome where DNA bending processes need to happen, are those regions by virtue of their local sequence also very flexible to accommodate such processes? Are regions where DNA bending processes should not happen for other, uh, you know, in order to serve other functions, are those regions also more rigid and we can really begin to answer questions like these. Except the only problem is that uh, we cannot do FRET experiments in such a large number of DNA fragments. It's simply impractical, it's too slow a method. So we developed a different method, and this is based on uh, next generation sequencing, which is a very uh, cutting edge modern technique of, of, uh, of sequencing a large number of DNA fragments. For example, if you give it like a, even up to a billion short fragments of DNA, each fragment having a different sequence, we are now able to tell exactly what those billions of sequences are. And this is a completely revolutionary technology that has changed the way we do molecular biology over the past uh, 10 years or so. So here again, what we do is we start with a very large number of short DNA fragments, let us say, which span an entire region of the genome, pretty much like what I showed in slide 12. We just pull those fragments together and allow those fragments to loop as fast as they can uh, for about a minute and remove the molecules that have failed to loop, preserving only the ones that have looped. And then by sequencing, and we don't have to go into the technical details here, we can, we can measure and quantify 
for every sequence that we originally had, how likely is it that it will end up in this looped pool and how likely it is that it would not have been looped in a short amount of time? And that likelihood is what we would quantify as the bendability or the, or the cyclizability of that sequence. So that's a sequencing-based technique that we developed. And even if you didn't get the details properly, you could just imagine that we now have a method that allows us to measure how, uh, with the variations in sequence throughout the genome, the local bendability or the cyclizability of DNA also varies across the entire genome. And then, as I said before, what we now want to do is compare these mechanical maps along the genome with other available genomic data which tells us where DNA deforming processes need to happen and see if there's a correlation. And we indeed see that. For example, if you look at slide 14, uh, on the right, uh, the, the two graphs, and the bottom is a graph of typically along a gene where nucleosomes are known to form. The y-axis is nucleosome occupancy. That's the blue curve. And right on top, is a map of along those same regions how the bendability of DNA varies. And we were amazed to see this very good correlation, that is, regions where nucleosomes are avoided, such as if you just go upstream of zero around minus 150, you have a large dip in nucleosome occupancy in the blue curve. And that also spot on corresponds to an extremely rigid DNA region. And then wherever there are peaks in nucleosome occupancy, we also see peaks in local DNA bendability. And to, to me, this really suggests that there is sort of a, a benefit for evolution to have selected DNA sequence that makes DNA in some regions very rigid and makes DNA in other regions very flexible because in turn, that facilitates the formation of nucleosomes in such regions and prevents the formation of nucleosomes in other regions. And in turn, this of course serves downstream processes such as transcription. So, so okay, so we have made a measure of, the, of DNA bendability as a function of position, but can we now really decipher this mechanical code? If I give you a piece of DNA sequence, can you look at it and decode it and tell me what its mechanical properties should be? And that's what that question is what we're trying to address in slide 15. We start with a large pool of DNA sequences. We measure their bendabilities based on this genomic technique that we have developed. And now, we want to develop some kind of predictive models that sees the patterns and like figures it out and allows us to predict bendability from sequence without having to run these measurements over and over again every time. And that really was the crux of the of the current paper which we are we're discussing. So let me tell you a little bit about these sequence patterns that we have spotted which seem to you know, point hints to how this mechanical code is written or is encoded. <clears throat> and we're on slide 16, by the way. So based on our measurements, 
the first sequence feature that we decided to to investigate as to whether it has an impact on DNA mechanics is, of course, the GC content or the AT content. That's the simplest feature that, that one can think about. And we saw that, no, the way we measure bendability, something as simple as the overall GC content or the overall AT content is completely uncorrelated with DNA bendability. Uh, that's the first graph on slide 16. So we decided to make it a little more complicated. Instead of looking at just GC content, we looked at the contents of all possible two nucleotide pairs. Now remember there are 40, there are four nucleotides, A, T, G, and C. So there are a total of four times four or 16 possible pairs. And what the middle graph is quantifying is, is simply this, that in a given sequence, in a given 100 base pair sequence, if I have a lot of these pairs, does it make on average a contribution towards the bendability of that fragment? And at the extremes are CG and TA. So CG makes a very negative contribution to bendability, which means that sequences that have a lot of CGs in them generally tends to be rigid, but that's not to say that they are all rigid. And sequences that have TAs in them a lot generally tends to be more flexible. And it doesn't end there. We can quantify the contributions of all of them. And we did this by really detecting and quantifying and doing statistics on the data that we have uh, obtained. And then the last uh, figure is a, is a little more complicated, but let me just explain what it generally means. It means that not only is the number of times these dinucleotides are present in a sequence matter, but how they're distributed along the sequence also has an important effect in that certain pairs of dinucleotides, when they are separated uh, at the helical repeat of, of DNA, they would make a positive contribution to bendability. And when separated at half the helical repeat would make a negative contribution to bendability. And we, again, spotted these patterns by essentially looking at the data and trying to figure out what those patterns are computationally. And we put it together into a sort of predictive model, which is what slide 17 uh, shows. And if you look at the, at the graph on the right, Remember, in the bottom panel is a map of how the known positions of nucleosomes vary along genes in yeast. And in the middle panel is the predicted measure of DNA bendability, while the top panel is the actual measures, measured values of DNA bendability. And the two red curves, the middle panel and the top panel, really recapitulate most of the broad features. And so that kind of tells us that this model we have come up with to, to decode the mechanical code of DNA does do a reasonable job in pulling out the important mechanical features that we think have important biological functions or consequences. Okay, so, uh, so that's, at this point, let, let me pause for one or two questions at this point. We're like two thirds the way done. And then I'm gonna show you some examples where we apply this mechanical code to different biological situations where we think DNA mechanics is important. And then I'll answer questions after that. But are there any questions right now?
I think Jeremy has a question. Please go ahead. Oh, yeah, and Perlo. Yeah, go ahead, both of you. Uh, I got to go back to the, excuse me, let me get the yeah. graph back up. Okay. Um, on 15 is the middle graph. Um, does that apply to everything? Like, can I use that as a, as a graph to say that bendability is expressed in, because I love that graph. Um, which, I'm sorry, which slide number are you on? Okay. Uh, it's it looks like it's 16 and 16 the middle, middle the middle chart yeah I, I understood yes so no no absolutely not is the answer uh, to that question um here's what it really means it means that if you give me let's say a hundred thousand random sequences and for each sequence i i sort of quantify how many times each of these dinucleotides occur and then I'll see that on average, if there are, there are a lot of CGs in a sequence, they tend to be rigid. On average, if there are a lot of TAs in a sequence, they tend to be flexible. But that is, it's like we, we obtain these, these the, the number on the y-axis is really the slope of a scatter plot of number of times the nucleotide occurs versus the bendability of the sequence in question. And that's just the slope that we are plotting here. Uh, there are millions of examples in which you have sequences with a lot of CGs which are extremely flexible. And so this is not something that you can just look at and read off bendability from. And not only that, let's, let's look at some of the uh, not so interesting dinucleotides like AA and AT, which are right in the middle, which don't seem to have any contribution at all. Well, it turns out that in a sequence, the overall content of nucleotides like AA doesn't really correlate with flexibility. But when there are two AAs separated by 10 base pairs, it tends to make the DNA very flexible. Whereas when you have two AAs separated by five base pairs, it tends to make the DNA rigid. And so it's not that overall content that's contributing, but the manner in which they are distributed in along the DNA sequence. And we took all of that into account when we built the predictive model, which we subsequently used to make the predictions in, in slide 17. And even then, the model's not that good. I mean, if you look at the graph on the left in slide 17, the correlation coefficient is only 0.5 between predicted and measured values. And that's really a reflection of how complex the, re the problem really is. So hope that gave you some idea about the question. I appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Let's go for it now. Uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to continue, and we'll come back to the questions later. I'm I'm almost done telling you whatever I wanted to say. So uh, let's go to slide 18. So we have now a model that we built on the basis of the the lots of measurements that we did, which which allows us to predict how local DNA bendability varies with position along large regions of the genome. And broadly speaking, we used it to show that uh, the way in which sequence modulates DNA bendability has played a functional role in ensuring that nucleosomes throughout the genome are organized uh, in a manner that's functionally, functionally important. So, of course, in biology or in any science, 
we're always looking for general principles. So we're not content with having a certain principle work in a very, very specific and limited way. So we asked, okay, nucleosome organization around the start sites of genes seems to be impacted by DNA bendability. Is it true for nucleosomes organization around other genomic loci, which are not necessarily the start sites of genes? And we picked an example. There's a transcription factor called CTCF, which serves many purposes. And it seems that nucleosomes are also formed in very stable manners around CTCF binding sites. And that's shown by the plot below. We have a plot of nucleosome occupancy as a function uh, from the center of the CTCF binding sites. And there are clear peaks of telling you that uh, you have a nucleosome here, you have a nucleosome here, you have a nucleosome here, and so on. And those peaks also corroborate with our predicted uh, locations of peaks in DNA bendability as, as written in sequence, really suggesting that sequence-encoded DNA mechanics might play a regulatory role in organizing nucleosomes, not just around start sites of genes, but, are, but around other genomic loci as well. But that was still about nucleosomes. What about processes that have absolutely nothing to do with nucleosomes? And let's skip slide 19 and go straight to slide 20. And here's an example of a situation where, uh, of a biological situation where you have extensive DNA bending, but there is no nucleosome involved. So there are proteins, there are enzymes called topoisomerases, which twist DNA, serving many important downstream processes. And in the process of twisting DNA, they need to significantly bend the DNA molecule. And here's the specific topoisomerase I'm looking at called DNA gyrase, which, which has a, a specific site that it really likes to bind to along the genome along a genome of, of a phage. And what I did here on the graph in the graph on the left is predicted intrinsic cyclizability as a function of position along that entire phage genome, which is known to have just one gyrase binding site. And as you see, along that entire genome, that one sharp peak in flexibility, which is zoomed in on the right, corresponds spot on to the one known position that gyrase is supposed to bind to, really suggesting an impact of DNA mechanics in controlling a process that has nothing to do with nucleosomes and in a very, very different type of organism. So, and, and the last thing that I wanted to leave you with is that, and maybe some of you are already thinking about this, is that things written in sequence are not really cannot really be controlled that much by by processes other than evolution which takes many many generations to work itself through so does do cells have have some control over the mechanical properties of dna uh, which they could do to for example respond to changes in in, in environmental situ conditions to respond to other stimuli that they may be subject to and so we asked, for example, do any of the chemical alterations to DNA that take place during, uh, during the life of a cell, 
have any impact on DNA mechanics. And one of those chemical alterations is methylation. It's a process whereby a methyl group gets added onto cytosines, uh, which are which precede a, um, a G. So if you have a C followed by a G, oftentimes the uh, the, cy the cytosine is methylated. And we asked whether this process of methylation would have an impact on DNA, DNA bendability. And, and we found that, yes, indeed, it does. So on slide 21, in the black curve is DNA bendability or cyclizability as a function of distance from the start sites of genes. Zero is the start site of genes. That's the black curve. If you recall what we showed earlier, there is this sharp dip in bendability corresponding to a region where nucleosomes shouldn't form. And then there are peaks as you go into the gene body, which is what you see. And then the, the orange, actually, I don't know what color that is. The orange, yellow, the hybrid curve is the map that you get if you were to methylate the DNA you sort of lose this contrast between the between the valley of the dip and the peak of the dip that contrast becomes a lot more shallow and that leads us to this very exciting possibility that if dna mechanics can control critical downstream processes then maybe maybe biological programs like development or diseases like cancers, which can change the methylation landscape, could achieve a part of their downstream effects by altering those physical properties of DNA itself. And so with that, I just wanted to put up this one sentence in the, in the conclusion slide. And let me just end on this broad note that, that if you look at the history of molecular biology, Big strides have always been marked by stages in our understanding of the way in which DNA stores information. The, the, the early big event was our discovery that DNA stores protein coding information in sequence via the genetic code. But, and that, in many ways, ushered the modern era of molecular biology. But then eventually we found out that there are other ways in which DNA stores information. For example, we found out that DNA stores information not only in the sequence of bases, but also in the manner in which these bases are chemically modified, what is known as epigenetic modifications. And that ushered in an entirely new and vibrant line of investigation. And then more recently, we found out that no, there are yet other ways in which DNA sequence stores information. DNA stores information, for example, in the overall three-dimensional shape of the genome. And that is a very active area of investigation. And what we are suggesting here is that even beyond all of that, DNA sequence also stores information in the manner in which sequence modulates the mechanical properties of DNA. And so there are possibly in biology, there are a myriad of different codes each using the sequence of alphabets along DNA in order to encode a different type of meaning. Just as there are different languages, which are the equivalent of different types of code, using a similar set of alphabets in order to encode different meaning or serve different functions. 
So uh, uh, in slide 23, I'd like to acknowledge the people who are involved in this work, who are still involved in the work, have been involved in the work in the past. So my lab at Durham is, is, very, uh, is very new. Uh, so I have two students, Aditi and Bailey, who have been working on taking this work further and developing a lot of the technological basis for some of the future experiments that we want to try. And then at Johns Hopkins, this work was of course done in collaboration with Johns Hopkins, specifically Tekjipa's group and members of his lab. And we really were instrumental in, in developing the early assays and the methods to measure DNA mechanics. And, and the funding. And, and once again, thank you very much for having me here. I was very interested uh, um, and it's, it, it's, it's, it's been great. I've been looking forward to this and, um, and I hope mm. now I can take questions and yes. uh, answer every, anything you want to ask. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, so I'm very intrigued with this in terms of um, uh, early stages of epigenetics in terms of embryology, for instance, mm -hmm. is there any linking of this as being able to transmit perhaps an initial, an initial naturally occurring mechanical gradient from the collections of cells that would transmit through the cell membrane such that it would affect the DNA kind of leading to the first generation of expression of morphogens and then, you know, even ongoing as well in terms of once, you know, tissues start to form, substrate adhesion molecules are made on the surface, again, transmitting the mechanical properties of, you know, the tissue formation and migration through the, the cell membrane to, you know, again, can make more, you know, types of morphogens that can be used in the further development of embryology. Um. Absolutely. Uh, I I probably didn't catch every detail of the question, but uh, I can tell you what I've thought out about how mechanical information can be transmitted from the environment to within the genome. Uh, there is a there is a there's a well studied linkage uh, that links the cell wall. There's the the act inside the skeleton of the cell, which is in contact with the nucleus. In turn, the nuclear membrane is in contact with DNA through lamin-associated domains and various other proteins that are involved in establishing these contacts. And so one can certainly imagine that if you pull and push on cells or if they find themselves in different mechanical situations, that information can make its way to the outer surfaces, to the outer surface of the genome, which is in contact with the, with the nuclear membrane. And then really understanding how that would propagate deep within the genome and impact local transcription throughout the genome is honestly a question that rely that requires us to to deeply understand the mechanical properties of DNA itself on various scales. Mm -hmm. Like if yes. you pull if you pull a piece of string, how how it responds a large distance away from where you gave the initial tug. It depends in very complex ways on the mechanical characteristics of the string. And so, you know, if we, as you, as you continue to develop more, as you continue to make more measurements of the of the types of mechanical properties and how they depend on sequence, I we would hopefully find ourselves in a position to be able to talk about how long distance mechanical signals can propagate through DNA. Yeah. 
So fascinating talk. Um, I, I've spent more time, you know, worrying about protein structure than, but I've always been curious. Um, and you know, RNA structure is quite fascinating. But the tertiary and quaternary structure of the chromosomes has always been a topic of interest. Um, this work seems uh, foundational for, you know, models of predicting, you know, that tertiary or quaternary structure and how that might relate to exposed sites that would be more kinetically available. Um, could you comment more on that? And perhaps as a follow-on question, um, are you um, involved or aware of, of work, you know, building on these models to um, either, you know, either in, through empirical calculations or, you know, AI type alpha fold sort of efforts and um, to, you know, work towards a, a better means of predicting the tertiary and quaternary structures? Um, great question. So we have concerned ourselves very much with, I guess, what you would call primary structure rather than uh, tertiary or quaternary, uh, because look at the scale at which we are looking at the process. We're looking at the process on a hundred base pair length scale. And that is, of course, a very important scale in biology because it is the sort of length scales at which proteins interact with DNA. So, which is why we decided to investigate there. Now, I guess your question is, to what extent do these very local measurements of DNA mechanics affect the large-scale structure and architecture of the genome? Um, and there is no easy way to answer that question. We must bear in mind that if you grow bigger and bigger in scale, you're also going to average out the sequence-dependent effects. So one has to be wary about how much would sequence-dependent variations and mechanics at smaller length scale manifest themselves when you talk about larger length scales. But of course, when it comes to RNA or proteins, we know it does. The way the quaternary or the tertiary structure forms very much depends on local interactions. But whether it's the case with DNA or not, or to what extent, is of course something that we have to look into. But I do want to talk a little bit about uh, how a, a large-scale structure of the genome could have an impact on local, on local states and what relation DNA mechanics might play in it. And this is really something that we are currently investigating in my lab. You know, in, in bacteria or in, in like E. coli or even cyanobacteria, we know that the superhelical density of the genome is this overall architectural parameter that is responsible for establishing the overall degree of compaction of the entire genome. So you could sort of think about it as a parameter that directly affects it, a, a large-scale tertiary structure of the genome. And that superhelical density of global superhelical density of the genome also somehow controls the transcription, the, the expression levels of hundreds of genes uh, scattered throughout the genome in a very complex and very specific manner. It knows that it affects this gene, this gene, this gene, and not this one, this one, and this one. And it does so, and, and like how this tertiary structural parameter controls local transcription is broadly unknown. 
And we have a hypothesis that perhaps the local bendability or the torsional rigidity of DNA uh, can respond to global supercoiling levels and accordingly determine what the local twist of the DNA is or how much uh, compact plectoneme structures are forming locally, which in turn would impact transcription. So uh, to sum up, we are investigating situations uh, where global structure and tertiary structure could impact local processes and that this impact, the, the manner in which it impacts it certainly is directly related to the way in which sequence controls DNA mechanics on a local scale. So, so thank you. I, you know, I was also fascinated how you looked at the um, the methylation mm -hmm. of the DNA and how that affects. And you know, just to to step way out in conjecture land about um, you know tertiary structure. Um, you know, in one in one sense, as as we age, that that the methylation increases in some cases. And I've always uh, been curious if that has an impact on um, the exposure of certain regions of DNA and that is there, um, you know, some type of progression of exposure through methylation, um, um, making some, some genes more available or less available with time. But it does seem like, um, you know, even the, just down to the local mechanical properties of whether, you know, the sequence is methylated or not, uh, may at least play into a uh, progression of of exposures for different genes. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. So if you look at on average what we find, we find that on average, the more methylation you have, the DNA sort of tends to become more rigid, although although this is average, how it how it behaves, by, ver by way of rigidity or flexibility depends on what the local sequence is. For example, if you have a CG being methylated, but it is surrounded by a very specific sequence feature, then that methylation could you know, make the DNA more flexible. But on average, it tends to make it rigid. If DNA is locally more rigid, I, one could argue that it would increase its uh, local uh, exposure. But at the same time, it would make it hard for binding proteins to deform the DNA molecule, which is something that with, with most binding proteins would want to do anyway. So there is a, there's a trade-off to that. And, and like what you mentioned, that during various, various progressions, be it aging, be it development, or be it during the progression of a disease, the methylation landscape changes, which has important downstream consequences for transcription, for example. And some of that can certainly be explained because methylation all serves as like a landing pad which recruits various factors which do many things. So some of that can be certainly be explained. But what our findings suggest is that maybe we also need to think about how methylation changes downstream processes because it alters the local flexibility or the exposure of DNA. And we're really at the, at the starting steps of trying to do that. Uh, we don't even know fully well how the methylated landscape behaves flexibility-wise, and we are sort of characterizing that right now.
Thank you. Fascinating work. I'll pass the mic. Thanks. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Abyss, and then Dr. Shah. Oh, um, since I already asked, uh, I mean, I did ask a question like early on the, during the presentation, so I, I will yield to Dr. Shah first, and then I'll, I can do it after. No problem. Thank you so much, Abyss, and thank you so much, Akash, for your wonderful presentation and uh, my question from you based upon. Uh, we know about the epigenome and how it can impact the changes. And you mentioned briefly about the cancer. And I was just wondering if uh, we, we want to think about your research and the use of your research. For example, in the case of the tumor heterogeneity and how it can epigenetic can impact it. So do you have further information? However, we can think about the aging and reversing of the aging, which it can I mean, apply for the cancer as well. So I was just wondering any further information that you can share with us. No, absolutely. I mean, cancer is cancer and aging are not are not separate. Cancer is a, is a consequence of of aging, and uh, in many ways, cancer is a disease of aging. So we could look upon them in the same way. Now, we know that methylation changes as you age. There are some very interesting works done on what is known as the methylation clock, which is like this pattern of methylation, which you can detect and very, very accurately use to quantify the age of the cell or the tissue. Um, whether it's a cause or a consequence of aging is unknown. So one has to be careful. If you talk about reversing, it's not a simple manner of just reversing the methylation uh, profile and reversing the course of a disease or the, or the, or the course of aging. Um, it could very well be a cause, it could very well be a consequence, or like most things, it could be a bit of both. Uh, and we don't know that. But all, all I am suggesting, or, or what we could think of in the light of the work that uh, we have been doing in our lab, is that, uh, is that w when you look upon the effect that methylation has, we need to consider the effect it has on the physical properties of DNA and chromatin as well. Because any other form of effect of methylation would be very, very specific. It's going to affect uh, a specific methyl, methyl C CPG recognition factors, or it would affect proteins that specifically have those binding factors. But if it can affect more general characteristics of the genome, like its architecture, its shape, its accessibility, and its local flexibility, then that's one way in which it can have uh, a much more wider, broader impact on, on downstream processes. So it's a bit like alcohol, which just goes and affects everything it can uh, more than, uh, and, it's not, and it's not very specific at all. So methylation, so mechanical changes as a result of methylation changes, which occur during the progression of a disease, could very well uh, alter that progression or could very well cause the downstream deleterious effects because it changes a large scale structural parameter of the genome. And what about the, for example, structure like ZDNA and Im impact mm -hmm. of them? How you just evaluate that one? Yeah, I mean, I have not looked at ZDNA particularly, and uh, you know, we know ZDNA forms. 
we know it forms in the lab, of course, it's easy to form, but uh, uh, we're not exactly, I mean, as far as my understanding is that we're not too sure whether ZDNA forms that often in vivo or not. But uh, just zooming out a little bit from, from ZDNA, if you just look at other sort of structures of DNA, like G quadruplexes or, or, or things of a similar nature, I, I honestly don't see a, a relevance of bendability um, in those cases. And it's easy to get carried away and think that everything can be uh, related to DNA bendability, and, and, and it really cannot. So, so it, uh, that's all I, I, can, I can comment on. I mean, in, in the specific case of D ZDNA, I don't know. I have looked at G quadruplexes because lots of people ask us this question, and we didn't find any kind of relation whatsoever between DNA mechanics and, and G quadruplex structure formation. Now, there are other structural transitions that DNA go through, like the B to Z transition, like you're talking about, or the B to S transition, um, and whether DNA or, or melting transition, or the uh, or, and whether DNA mechanics on the local scales would have something to do with those transitions or something to do with the critical coefficients associated with those transitions. That That's an interesting question, but I don't have the answer to that. Thank you so much. I'm passing the mic to the next person. Hey, Atash. Um, yeah, really good presentation um, again. Um, Thank you. So I guess my, my question is there. Um, so I, I don't know if you've done um, work on this, but even if it, if it if it's not even if it's not like if it's I'm just curious like if it's something that it's something that you're looking into, which is, um, do you think that there is some kind of me mechanical strain like the example in um single cell single cell organisms that tend to create like repeats of uh, sort of like interspace short palindromic repeats like CRISPR for example. And do you think that would create some kind of mechanical strain because of the sheer repeatability of certain um, sequences of, 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 of genes to in order to prevent like you know, um, viral infection? And with that, I'm also curious um, what you think um, about like some portions of the DNA that do not go through the transcription process, like for example, telomeres. If that's actually more of the mechanic mechanically enforced as opposed to like uh, uh, other factors. Okay, so uh, let's talk about the first uh, point that you raised, which is does repeatability of sequence features um, impose a, a mechanical strain to DNA? Is that is that what you were asking? Right. So, right. Okay. Exactly. Yes. So, okay. So let let me tell you what we what we have observed so far, or we could just start with the simple example. Uh, for example, if there is a short sequence feature that tends to bend DNA in a certain direction, then if you have that sequence feature repeat every helical repeat, like every ten base pairs, then those bends would get reinforced, would add in phase, and you would have an overall curved molecule. Whereas if those features were to repeat themselves every five base pairs that have the helical repeat, then they will cancel out and you'd have a more straight molecule on your hands. And 
we routinely see this when we analyze our bendability data. Now, you see, I didn't talk about it, but in our data, we can't really distinguish between whether a molecule is, is flexible in a dynamic sense or whether it is statically curved so that the ends are already close to each other, allowing that looping to happen quickly. We can't really distinguish between these two situations. And that's not a huge impediment because in biology, uh, if it's statically curved, it would also facilitate forming bent DNA protein structures, which is really what we are trying to predict here. And we routinely find in our observations that there are sequence motifs like AAs and ATs, which when repeated every 10 base pairs tends to make DNA more uh, statically curved when repeated five base pairs seems to have the opposite effect. And then we looked at certain regions of the C. elegant genome, uh, which is it's known as the omega, omega-4 region, where there is what is known as hyperperiodic DNA. If, uh, certain sequence features have a very strong periodicity as compared to other regions. And using our predictive models, we saw that those regions are also very, very flexible. And, and if we were to scramble the periodicity by keeping the sequence contents, the contents of ATG and C the same, but if we scramble the sequence in those regions, we lose that enhanced um, uh, mechanical uh, flexibility or, or, or curvature. And that's yet another way in which hyperperiodic repeats of certain motifs that confer structural properties can certainly reinforce each other and create overall large-scale curved or straight structures um, when repeated many, many, many times. Um, th does that somewhat answer the question? It does. It does. Uh, mm -hmm. I guess my second question was on why yeah. if like parts of the you know parts of the DNA that do not re regularly go through transcription, do you kind of oh yeah back to that. Yeah, I, I I haven't done studies, but you know it, it it gets raised all the time and it's super interesting. I think it'll be very interesting to look at telomeres, uh, for example, and mainly from the point of view that there is even though it's not being transcribed, but the telomeres are abundantly bound with so many proteins and so many factors, uh, and its uh, its degree of compaction or degree of exposure has important consequences for biology. So uh, it would be super cool to measure mechanical properties along telomeric regions and see how it correlates or, or whether we could make some sense out of it in the light of the processes that, that take place there. But I haven't done any such measurements yet. Yeah, thanks so much. I'll pass the mm -hmm. mic to the next person. Uh, yeah, Jeremy, Philip, Amir, please go ahead and ask your questions. Uh, oh, if Amir, do you want to go? No, go ahead, please. Thanks. Thank you. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't hear the questions um, Abyss was say, uh, Brother Abyss was saying, but um, thank you, Akash, for being clear um, in your response. Thank you again. Oh, let me start properly. Thank you for sharing sharing your your, your studies. Um, very inspiring. Um, I'm an amateur in this. Um, I'm a beekeeper, um, Sanko for scientists in that sense. Um, so uh, through observation and, and trying to understand my my livestock. 
um, you know, it, it has brought me into these type of realms um, where I'm interested in these, it's brought me into these conversations. It sounds like when you're talking about the silence language, um, a secret code and whatnot, similar to cert twins, certs, yeah? Is it the certs or you, are you referring, is this part to do with the certs type of thing, like certs one, two, three, and four, et cetera? Um, not really as not not really uh, let, let let me clarify I mean there is no there, there is no like special code here it's not a clear-cut code like the genetic code is I mean we know that sequence features impact mechanical properties and in that way it's a code but if you look at the genetic code you know a certain Codon always codes for this amino acids, no matter what you do to it, no matter what conditions you put it in. But the mechanical code need not be so specific. For example, under certain conditions, a certain sequence can code for a certain mechanical property. If you change the salt, if you change the osmotic stress, if you change the temperature, uh, if you change the organism, if you change the epigenetic marks, it could be different. So. We all have we have to embrace the fact that this code is not as as hardwired or as rigid as as the genetic code is. And oh, most definitely. It, yeah, and in relation to CERC proteins, I mean, I I've never I mean I I don't I, I can't really comment anymore in, in that. Uh, could you could you explain to me why you felt that the similarity? Well, it, is yes, because, well, just yeah, the way yeah. how you was referring them, like the mechanisms, and I'm looking at mm -hmm. um, your, your 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 slides, um, mm -hmm. and in relation with like the where you refer to the the twisting or the bending and yeah. the un, and, and and the unwinding, the unbending or the reversal yeah. of um, that that again sounds similar to the behaviors um, that the certs um, influence or relay or um, um, or regulate in you know in that sense and and funny enough you know the I agree um, if we're talking about bendability and I think yeah. bendability is the same as plasticity is bendability the mm -hmm. same as plasticity you could you could think about it bendability is the ease with which you can bend specifically bend but so yeah i'm sure they're okay. related yeah. okay 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 but i i understand what you mean by the bendability mm -hmm. and then the rigidity of something correct hence so funny enough there was a question i so there's a lot of things i want to say but there was a, initially the first question i kind of responded to was when you mentioned yeah. to um the colleague who mentioned um Jeremy mentioned something and you was responding to him and you mentioned uh, um, it was regarding slide 16 or 17 and you mentioned like a ratio of a number. You mentioned the last number was five and I think you said three, but you could have said eight, but I don't know. But then when you was talking to Abyss, you mentioned it again, but guess what? I only heard the latter part. Oh. So it was either five and three or five and eight. Can you remember saying that number? Or I remember you? saying five. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, what I meant when I said five was that like five is half the helical repeat. Yes. So, uh, so you know, DNA is a double helix. So the two strands are wrapping around each other as you yes, go. Yes, and there's the a helix. five and three ratio. Yeah, between that, isn't it? There's a five and three ratio or algorithm. Is that correct? 
No, like oh. every 10 base pairs, okay. the helix fully twists by one turn. Uh -huh. What that means is that if, let's say, you're sitting on a particular base pair and, you, and you're looking in one direction and mm -hmm. you see something, and then mm -hmm. if you move over 10 base pairs and if you sit on the 10th base pair and look in the same direction, you'll still see the same thing because yeah. you've gone one full turn around. Whereas if you did five base pairs, you'd be looking at exactly the, like if you were looking um, towards the center of the DNA circle, you'd now be looking towards the outside because you just half the turn yes, away. Yes. So, yeah. And so in that sense, what I meant to say is that, let us say a certain very short sequence feature bends DNA uh, in one direction. Now, if that feature repeats itself every 10 base pairs, those bend directions are going to add up. It's like, you know, if you've played with circular train tracks that kids uh, can play with, they fit into each other. And it's like, you have one circle, uh, you, you, uh, you know, in, in kids' yeah, toys, I fully understand. Train, yeah, I understand train tracks. What you mean. Yeah. Yes, I understand. If you, if you fit the tracks in the same phase, they'll make a larger circle. But if you fit them every five, like if you fit one curving this way and the next one curving the other way and the next one curving the other way, you'll essentially make a straight line, although it'll be wiggly up and down. And that's what's going to happen if you, for example, repeat the features that make DNA curved every five base squares as opposed to every 10 base squares. And we see, and we really see that in our measurements. Yeah. So basically, yes, it, it was to do with spacing and Correct. basically, yes, Correct. it was to do with spacing and this, well, obviously sequencing mm -hmm. obviously influences spacing. Spacing is mm -hmm. part of its vocabulary, I'm assuming. Right. Or, Absolutely. Know, it's it. part of yeah. the mechanical vocabulary. You can, you can think about thank it that you, way. Thank you. Um, so yeah, anyway, um, so yeah, I just believe that when I was listening to you, it sounded like how the behavior, the mechanics, the, the, mm -hmm. the, yeah, the mechanics of how the sirtuins, yeah. and obviously yeah. I've associated the sirtuins to the yes. royal jelly, um, to, yes. to understand the royal yes. jelly and the, the, yes. the, how it influences the queen and distinguishes yes. as a larvae to have its stem. There was a very interesting realized. paper recently, mm -hmm. right? On if you feed royal jelly, you can, uh, you can determine which bee is going to become the queen. Yes, I mean, I very true. Very vaguely yes, knew about that's it, very true. But yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, since you since you talk about similarities, mm. that's that's a general theme in in science. Like if you think about it, mm -hmm. uh, uh, if you look at the macroscopic world, and I give you, let's say, a cable, you can bend it, you can twist mm -hmm. it, you can feel these things. And here I'm talking about bending and twisting DNA, which is, which is like as far removed from the world of our perception as you can possibly be. And we're quantifying its mechanical properties in exactly the same way as if we were talking about a, a cable that we can hold in our hands. That That is amazing and fascinating to me. And, you know, I'm not, it, it's it's great that you see those similarities in contexts like sirtuins, uh, which are very far removed from DNA, but that, really reflects the fact that a lot of fundamental principles in science are applicable on a large diversity of scales, whether it is, or, or a large diversity of systems. That's what makes these things really general and really interesting. Mm. May, may I ask, why do you say that Sir Chewins is far away from, did you say biology? Uh, no, DNA? No, 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 not scales, but systems as a, 
Uh, no, yeah, but did yeah. did you did I hear you? Did you say that um, Sir Tewins is far away from DNA, or what did you mean? Can you repeat? What... Oh, I all all I meant all I mm. meant in this context is that it is not, uh, you know, it's not a it's it's a different system. We're talking yes, about it's a, it's a different system, and the same 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 principles are and and. To this you know, the phenomena, the sort of phenomena that happens in one system tends to happen in other systems as well. That's what yes. makes these things very interesting. It's 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 right. more it's... general rather than rather than being specific. True. Thank you. Oh, sorry, sorry for taking the time, mm -hmm. guys. And and, and no I worries. hope that yes. me being the fool allowed others to hear a bit more information. <laughs> Whatever. Sorry. Thank you, guys. No, Peace no. and love. Well, thank you for that. Uh, please don't apologize for questions. Um, Amir, uh, did you have a question? Yes, yeah, finally, it's my turn. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Yeah, thank you, Akash, for the nice presentation and the excellent work. Uh, uh, so I had a question. I was wondering if you checked and if you observed any correlation between the, the codon usage and the bendability of the DNA. So if you saw a correlation like in a region of the the genome that more bendability is required do do the codon usage is or is the codon usage adapted to that need or uh, or did you check at all thank you all right wow i just say wow i am super impressed that you asked a question which is exactly what i'm working on right now it's it, it, it just i mean i'm very happy it means that i'm working on something that other people think is also relevant and it also means that you've really grasped and, and you've thought deeply about about what i'm what i was saying yes absolutely we do see that codon usage has a very uh interesting relationship with with dna flexibility so we were asking this general question that, okay, a specific DNA sequence has a specific mechanical property. There's nothing you can do about it. But if you want to code a certain protein, uh, you have a large choice of which, of what the coding DNA sequence would be because of the degeneracy of the genetic code, which in turn is also, it's not, you don't have access to the full degeneracy, of course, because the codon usage uh, limits it but you still have a large number of sequences to choose from. And so the general question that I was asking is uh, to, to what extent is our need to, uh, is the need for evolution to select a specific mechanical property of DNA in a certain region of the genome, to what extent is it constraining the sort of amino acid sequence that region can encode for? Or, in other words, or does the degeneracy of the genetic code allow evolution complete independent control over mechanical properties and amino acid sequence? And so uh, in, in yeast, what we did was this. We, we had measured DNA mechanics around transcription start sites, and we saw that it has a very clear pattern. DNA is rigid upstream of the start sites, Downstream, it goes through peaks in um, in the the DNA bendability goes through peaks which correspond to nucleosome locations, and then we randomize codons along the gene bodies, uh, taking into account the codon bias of yeast, and we found that those mechanical signatures are no longer there anymore. They they're gone, 
And what it told us, and I think this is very interesting, is that the choice of codons that are there natively in an organism has been fine-tuned by evolution to best optimize mechanical properties along DNA, which serve other important functions. And we're really trying to grasp the, even the question that we are asking right now as to what extent does codon usage and codon degeneracy and the TRN and the, and the, and the codon bias link the genome's requirement and, uh, to the proteome's constraints that, that, the, the, that the proteome is constrained under. So uh, yeah, thanks for asking a very interesting question. Thank you yeah, for you. for the answer. I have another question, if if it's okay. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, sorry, maybe you already mentioned it, but I missed it. Uh, so I was wondering how exactly the the calculation is 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 implemented. Is it a neural net or any other method? Oh, you mean the the calculation for predicting DNA mechanics? Exactly. Oh, yeah, we did yeah, it two yeah. ways. We did it two ways. So uh, we made we made a large number of measurements of sequence and mechanical properties. One was a neural net, which is a black box type thing. And the other is we tried to pick out these short sequence features like contents of dinucleotides, the spacing between dinucleotides, and we put it together in sort of a, um, a regression model, a linear regression model, uh, which gives us more physical insight. And they both perform reasonably well or, or reasonably poorly, no matter which, what you want to consider, which, which really means that the code is very complex. Uh, the space of 100 base pair DNA sequence is larger than the number of atoms in the universe. And we are only sampling like uh, 10,000 or 100,000 such sequences. To us, which is an astronomical number be made possible by next-gen DNA sequencing. If you compare it earlier, people could do it only for you know one or two or five different data sequences. And now we can suddenly do it for 100,000, but it's still tiny. And it's no surprise, therefore, that a, that a training set of 100,000 is not enough to capture the full space. And we need to continuously rely on actual measurements in order to truly understand DNA mechanics. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for the question. I, I have a last question if you, if you still have time. Um, we had a guest speaker here. I don't know if you read the paper uh, about using immuno-oligostorm imaging uh, combined with visualization of the DNA histones to also look uh, at um, the folding uh, with, you know, the folding of the genes with a nucleosome resolution and they found that during a different like in stem cells for example versus mature cells that um, the folding is different um, to in order to <clears throat> so what they saw is that different genes um, are close together at some point and then not anymore at another stage of the cell so Based on your model, what do you think, what changes basically this folding, this dynamic folding, because 
you know, you kind of predict that the DNA code itself um, changes the, the folding information, but then, you know, the, the genes are used differently and folded differently throughout um, throughout uh, steps of maturation. So, so do you think it's methylation and so on? Like, or what are you planning on um, uh, expanding your model uh, for for those levels of complexity too? Yeah, thanks for the question. It is it's a complex question. There's no there's no doubt about it. It's not something that we can simply look at some me simple measurements of DNA mechanics and and comment like uh, how we know, of course, that as as development takes place, the three-dimensional folding of the genome changes dramatically. Genes is genes that were like high C maps, for example, tell us that genes that were close together become far apart. Other regions of the of the chromosome are brought close together so that they can be co-transcribed, uh, co-trans, uh, yeah, co-transcribed in the same transcriptional factory, and so on. They can share transcription factors, and then genes become far apart. Um, there, we we don't know. We don't know to what extent DNA mechanics on the local scale, which is relevant for a single DNA protein interaction, can manifest itself or can have any impact if it does on large scale rearrangement and folding of the genome. But this, I think, ties in to one of the earlier questions to which I was responding, which is how, let's say, external factors can influence the shape and the transcriptional profile throughout the genome. Um, methylation, I mean, I, I understand why you're, you're talking about methylation, because during the course of development, that's the only thing that can change. Sequence is not changing. So if methylation controls DNA mechanics, it changes, and perhaps that induces some change in local folding. But it's, um, you know, in absence of further measurements, we can't really suppose that it, it has an effect that that goes beyond the 100 base pair length scale that we have measured it. So I guess one has to be careful there in and not get carried away too much. Um, other than methylation, there could be other, other factors as well which change DNA mechanics, which is not sequenced. So it's not something written in stone. Uh, for example, uh, you know, different types of methylation, it just, it, sorry, different types of epigenetic modifications. It could be uh, different DNA damage scenarios that could come about or it could be chromatinization of DNA itself could change mechanical properties, like how the DNA's mechanical property and the mechanical property of DNA bound to protein, that, that structure can be very different. And as you go up and up in scale, those, those structures will, will more start to becoming more important. But really all of that discussion was to say that the correct answer to your question is, is I don't know. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I think we've been going on. Um, yeah, I'm curious to see, you know, <laughs> what the future yeah. brings in order to answer all those questions. Mm -hmm. It's always like the best type of work that uh, that those, you know, there there will be a lot more questions. That opens up a lot more questions. Actually, that's the interesting one. So yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, congratulations on this amazing work. And uh, we wish you all the best uh, for your future. And um, yeah, maybe one day when you, when you, uh, yeah, you could maybe um, update us uh, in a year or so what, you, what, um, 
results you came um you know to um, discover so thank you so much absolutely and thank you so much for having me here this was very interesting and the questions are very very insightful i have to say and uh, it was very engaging and i really enjoyed it so thank you everyone well thank for you for having me and for inviting yeah me. that's always the best when the speaker also enjoys it that's you know the best mm -hmm. um uh, for us too we are very happy to hear that and yeah i hope i hear you all back again soon uh thanks for asking amazing questions uh it's always so much more interesting when there are many different people asking questions it makes the discussion way more interesting. And our next uh, room is with Dr. Rai, who um, invented a new technology for precision engineering of proteins. Um, so yeah, I hope to hear you all back soon next week. And thank you, Ashkash, so much for uh, you know going through the trouble to come here to Clubhouse to talk with us. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, happy weekend, everyone. I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye, everyone.